Hello, and welcome to the Grand Stories Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Work Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. Look forward to your being with us. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Dr. Kudor Snell. In the last episode, Dr. Snell shared vivid insights into growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era, including stories and memories about losing his childhood home to the effects of the 1965 Group Areas Act, arrests and banishments of family members and friends, and the detrimental mental health effects for oppressed populations. To begin this section of the interview, I asked Dr. Snell to tell us about the District 6 neighborhood in Cape Town, South Africa. Yes, District 6 was in the olden days, and I'm talking before 1948, a neighborhood where Jews, Blacks, Indians, whites, coloreds, uh, all sorts of nationalities, ethnicities and races lived together, worshiped together, had friendships together, were neighbors together. Uh, there was just a rich, vibrant culture. I grew up in District 6. I spent my high school years there when I went uh, to Harold Pressey High, which was one of the better uh, colored schools in the Cape. And it was named for the first colored man who received his BA degree in, so, uh, in uh, education from the University of Cape Town. So there was a lot of history, a lot of richness there. But of course, with the forced removals, people were forced out and colored folks, black folks were relegated to go to the Cape Flats or into the black townships where nothing grew, where nothing existed. There was no infrastructure. There were no jobs, no schools, uh, sandy grounds, um, wind, windy. So they moved from uh, the view of the Atlantic and Indian oceans down at the bottom of the country uh, where there were, I, I remember seeing palm trees and yes. uh, very beautiful areas where you could look out over the oceans. Yes. And you moved to areas that were arid, very much desert-like, that was at least 20, 30 miles away. That's right. And, so and uh, this was the forced uh, re, uh, um, I guess, uh, reintegration or resegregation of different groups based That's upon right. who they were. And so I, they uh, was another way of being able to control them. Yes, sir. And, and don't forget the beautiful Table Mountain. <laughs> that was yes, the Table Mountain, there. of course. That uh, was the beacon, like where people could see from District 6, you know, look up at Table Mountain. Table yes. Mountain was like it. Yeah. And so uh, now you were removed from familiar sites and people had to commute and travel. And, you know, their salaries remained the same. So there were all these extra expenses uh, people designed had. Designed to, to break you down. That's right, exactly. 
So I, I remember um, having gotten an opportunity to travel there, as you know, uh, yeah, yeah. to South Africa. One of the uh, sites that I found particularly troubling to me was those individuals at many who had been in District 6 who had protested ended up being incarcerated on Robben Island. Yes, sir. And Robben Island, actually, uh, if you had an opportunity to look out in that direction of Cape Town, you could actually see uh, everything that was there and see how beautiful it was, but you were relegated to being incarcerated. Yes. Um, and yeah, that, that is very troubling. I, I, I actually, um, tears formed in my eyes when I looked at where, um, where folks uh, like Nelson Mandela had to live. Yes, uh, and got an opportunity to see his uh, prison cell. But I was struck by the way in which they persecuted people who were productive citizens, um, teachers and lawyers and doctors and uh, people who had uh, reasonable jobs in construction and uh, other types of, of work that yes. were put there at this maximum security uh, prison on Robben Island, and on the same island, they had a um, medium security prison, which is where they put the rapists and, and murderers. That's right. So you actually had a higher level of of uh, incarceration at the prison for political um, right. uh, prisoners than you did for those who were common criminals. You that got was it. that was very very depressing and shocking to me. You got um, it. You got it. But you know, there's a strength perspective, <laughs> Dean Cosby. Go ahead. Please <laughs> share the strength perspective. With a me. lot of these educated folks, like you mentioned, the teachers and the lawyers, they qualified and they could study through UNISA and they were allowed education, edu educational privileges. So they became qualified. Many of them became lawyers while they were in prison, which is ironic, <laughs> and then went out. But and that was stopped after a while. You know, they used to call it Robben Island University uh, yeah. because many of our political prisoners went there. <laughs> that was where Nelson Mandela studied, right? Yes. 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 Um, so uh, uh, that, that obviously was quite, uh, quite troubling. Um, how were older people treated at that time? You know, the different uh, racial treatments, of course, uh, white folks sent their parents mostly to institutions. I'm generalizing, it's not true for everyone, but that was the trend is that if you got old and you were not so useful anymore, you, was, you went into an old age home or a nursing home. Now for us colored folks, that was egregious, right? Because we embraced and integrated our elderly in the homes. I grew up with my grandfather. He, he and I shared a room. He lived in our house until he passed away at age 88. We took care of him. You know, he was there and that's a, not an unusual or unique story. That's more typical, uh, but that has changed, sadly, Dean Cosby, because of economic realities. You know, many of us now are professionals and also have our own jobs. So we cannot accommodate or afford uh, in terms of time to have our elders with us in the home. So they have started building homes, you know, institutions for colored 
for Blacks, for Indians, where we now also place our elders, our older folks, our senior citizens. And many of us got chastised for throwing away our parents and putting them away, you know, like the white people did, <laughs> like whites did. So there is a lot to that, what you said, and I appreciate your sharing in that way um, and answering the question. Um, in this country, the issue related to older people uh, being uh, being institutionalized versus uh, being uh, community-based and remaining independent is largely dependent upon how much money you have. Yes. So uh, was it the case that they couldn't afford to live in some uh, institutional settings and therefore families stepped up to take care of their elderly as a result of some of that? Absolutely right. You got it. It's the economy of, of the situation. Wonderful. Yeah, you got it. And then, of course, not having the facilities or the resources either because right. we weren't as well-resourced or the needs weren't recognized as such. So thank you for sharing that. Given the fact that you obviously grew up during apartheid, and uh, I, I uh, know that you've had an illustrious career, uh, you've actually sit in a very interesting place in that you have the ability to compare and contrast what you've seen here in the United States versus what you have seen there. And it was my understanding that the, uh, the leaders of the, the nationalist movement when they were moving to apartheid were looking at three models that they said. And I think Miss um, uh, uh, Wilkerson uh, spoke of that in her last book, Cast, where she was speaking about some of that. Um, but the, uh, the apartheid system was based in part on things that were happening here in the United States yes, in sir. terms of, uh, uh, of uh, slavery and then the uh, Jim Crow era uh, in the South and some would argue in the, in the North as well. But um, yes, sir. what would you say in terms of civil rights or human rights issues that you have seen that you embrace as most important based on that? Um, yes, very interesting. We've learned from you. <laughs> we got it. South Africa has taken. Learn from the United States. From the United States. It has also taken some of the ideas from Germany, you know, from That's Nazi a, Sadly, Germany. from uh, the time of the Nazis, yes. That's right. The Heron Folk idea, you know, the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryan race. Um, and yet... We also learned from the civil rights movement in terms of how folks got together in the United States to fight social injustices, you know, especially um, the black churches, the ministers like Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who was at the front line, and then later Reverend J.C. Jackson. And of course, we had our own Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, you know, setting, uh, starting the marches, uh, so we had that parallel, they're parallel movements, but you're right, the similar histories in terms of oppression and discrimination and the laws, and yet at great cost, and we see it here too, you know, people were actually attacked by police persons, by dogs, by, you know, brutally attacked. We saw that here and 
in South Africa, many, many parallels. Uh, and I think we've gathered strength from examples and, and, and a commonality and universality of common struggles and issues um, and having support worldwide, you know, from those who are, um, who understood the struggle and, and you know, uh, wanted to rectify wrongs. Uh, so I see, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yes, I think you're okay. answering it. Uh, uh, did you want to continue? I didn't want to stop your thought. Um, no, I and I know you and I were very interested, and we never got the little project off the ground. But yes, to look at uh, the comparisons and contrasts, I, I still know. want to do that. We were talking about the uh, legal precedents, and I have made yeah. some progress on that, but would certainly yeah. welcome your participation. Yeah, because you were in South Africa too, and so saw firsthand, uh, and could uh, tell me, uh, you know, point out the commonalities and the similarities. And things have changed so much. I know more about the history, you know, and how it started and how it's similar. It would be interesting to look at what's happening now, because I think things have changed. Well, yeah, different reversals. You know, people are saying now, okay, we don't have an apartheid system in South Africa anymore, but it's an apartheid of a different kind. Yeah, uh, people are saying. And if you look at the the movement here in the United States in terms of the conservative elements, the more right wing ultra conservative, you know, yeah, it's I, like our countries have changed. South Africa, you know, had the greatest constitution in the world in terms of protections. I came to the United States because of opportunities, because we learned that here, you know, if you worked hard, you could make it. It didn't matter what your race was or your origin. And now we see the reverse. It's now we see the anti-immigrant, the xenophobic uh, attitudes coming to the front um, and lack of opportunities in many cases. I'm generalizing, but you know, that seems to be like the flavors of the day sure. in terms sure. of our two countries. Yeah. So I know you're a very uh, spiritual person, um, but I'm reminded of the biblical quote, with all thy getting, get understanding. Yes. Um, what understanding would you want to share with others? Wow. Do you know what? That's, thank you for that. Because that, I grew up in a house with that understanding that I'll share, which I think probably kept me from going stark raving mad or crazy or ending up in an asylum in South Africa or in prison, even where many of my peers ended up or as alcoholics or um, substance abusers, you know, very sad or my young girlfriends uh, who ended up being young mothers because we had no outlets, we had no hope, we had no dreams. Uh, we thought, or, um, you know, I had to learn to forgive and not to be so angry given what was done in our family and what we experienced firsthand. So my mother's motto was always, she had the golden rule, do unto others as you would others do unto you. So I grew up with that sense of 
forgiveness and understanding. That's where my understanding, very naive, very naive. Uh, that was for my mom. Now, my father's is probably not credited with biblical. It's more educational. But he would always say, you know, study hard, do the best you can. Uh, and it's not easy uh, to achieve. You have to work. You have to put in, you know, your time and your effort. But education is something that nobody can take away from you, that you'll always have. You can, and my grandfather, again, who was a tailor, literally always a kind man, a very gentle man, would always say, traveling with your hat in your hand, you can go all over the land. You know, uh, it's an Afrikaans saying that I just <laughs> translated directly. My mate, hut and your hand, kom jy dier die land. It's like, so, you know, with humility, with uh, respect for others, carrying your hat in your hand, you will get through whatever, you know, you need to negotiate or survive. Uh, not to be obsequious, I don't think he meant that, but it's not to be angry. And even my dad, my dad was never angry. I never grew up with any racist, despite everything that happened to us. There was always an embrace of difference and different cultures and an openness. So I guess I like the biblical uh, reference, and I know you're spiritual too, so you understand this, is that whole notion of being hospitable to the stranger, you know, taking in the stranger and, yeah. yeah. So uh, the example of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. There you go. Uh, yes. That's right. So, so you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I'm reminded of his uh, speech, as I've said in other uh, settings, that he was a, a drum major for justice, for peace, and for righteousness. And thinking of social justice in light of all of that history, all of that uh, experience that you had growing up in South Africa under apartheid, having seen what it was like beforehand, yeah. having seen social justice uh, in this country, and yeah. having participated in, uh, in various uh, uh, events uh, in the movement here in this country, like the struggle in South Africa. Um, yes. How would you describe yourself from a social justice standpoint? Wow. Mm. <laughs> Probably someone who is aware and understands it. I wished that I could say I was a champion or a, a cheerleader in terms of being in the front lines for marches and stuff like that and protests, because I've seen the dangers in South Africa. I've seen the harms. I've seen the power. And I think it probably scared me or made me more afraid of being upfront and in the face of it. So I would probably see myself as a champion from the back, a cheerleader on the sidelines and within the group rather than the one out up front. You know, I like what Mr. Mandela said in terms of social justice and his philosophy. So I think it's, I, I, that aligns more with my own personality is that, you know, you can also lead from the back. You don't always have to lead from the front. Mm -hmm. So I would say I'm probably more of 
that kind of a social justice person, Dean Cosby. Um, So you have uh, have been able to uh, be a person that has helped to change people's lives. I've uh, witnessed that both in terms of understanding and spoken to former students of yours. So you've been teaching at the university level for 30 years. Is that about right? I started in 89. So okay. 32 years going yeah. on. 32. Yeah, so, so more than 30 years. And uh, you have uh, obviously uh, uh, done so with grace and with uh, humility. Um, but you've also led as a dean of the School of Social Work for about 10 years. Um, and now you work uh, with our current dean, uh, uh, Dean Sandra Crew. Yes. And uh, you have uh, continued in your teaching. Yes. So what do you think should be priorities as we people of color should consider going forward? Wow. I do like, and that's why I probably stayed at Howard this long, as I do like the vision and mission of the school and the university. And, you know, I, again, uh, the social justice piece is huge for us, I think, as people of color in the United States, but also in the world. I would also like, clearly, because where I come from and my own background, but it's not to the exclusion of others, have an appreciation for how our different cultures, how our different nationalities, how we enrich one another, you know, that the diversity is there to be celebrated and not to uh, be afraid of or to criticize or to be angry about, you know. Uh, yeah, it hurts me to, to uh, hear and experience and read about xenophobia, uh, about racism, uh, social justice, you know, the worlds that we live in, it, it doesn't seem like it's really pretty. <laughs> so I would like for the next generation of uh, students and social workers to embrace, you know, that difference and not to be, yes, we've had our own issues. And I could clearly have said, you know, I don't like white people. I'm angry for what they've done and, and so forth and so on. But I think, and this is not a microaggression, you know, uh, because while I was thinking whites were homogeneous in South Africa, I also learned through the struggle that we had people who were willing to lay their lives on the ground in terms of our struggles, which weren't necessarily there so intimately. And even with Bishop Tutu, you know, he talks about how he came to the ministry, how he came to do good in the world, was through his mentor, Trevor Huddleston, the white Anglican priest in Soweto. Oh, and he wrote a beautiful book, Dean Cosby. If you don't know it or have it, uh, it's called Naught for Your Comfort by Trevor Huddleston. It's a, a classic. Um, and that formed my own, you know, ideas about the future. And it's so relevant even today to uh, draw from those lessons. So I would take those old lessons and, you know, and the things we're experiencing now and just be mindful of wherever, you know, and again, I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King who said, and, and justice done to one, or right, is done to many, 
uh, or something like that. That's you know, you sure. get the idea. <laughs> no, I I, I I know the quote that you're referencing. Yeah. Um, so uh, we've we've come to the end of our our talk for today, uh, which has been fascinating, and I'm so grateful that you've been able to speak with me. Um, your contributions have been significant, uh, both here at Howard University and staying involved with the University of the Western Cape and doing uh, much of your work. You didn't talk very much about that, but your work as uh, Assistant Provost uh, International Affairs, uh, doing uh, work uh, internationally. Um, what would you say, you said in part what you thought was most important for the next generation would you add anything to what you said in terms of being able to be giving, uh, being able to look at gaining understanding, uh, looking at ways in which we can uh, speak uh, to our, 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 uh, our younger and older people to say, this is important. What, what else might you say? Oh, boy, <laughs> very provocative. And now, mm, and I don't know why I'm struggling with uh, things to say. Well, in terms, you know, of elders, I don't know, senior citizens, I don't know. It's just being open also to the lessons, the valuable lessons that they that they share or that they give or from and learn from their experiences from, uh, you know, and I still am grounded by lessons from my maternal and paternal grand well, I didn't know my mother's mother, but her, her father, just lessons about respect for, you know, human beings and for nature. Now we're talking also about our environment. And so I'm also thinking uh, environmental justice lessons or environmental justice awareness uh, is critical and important because we all live and share this planet together. So we might as well take care of it and take care of one another, you know, through kindness and compassion and understanding. Well, thank you. Greatly appreciate this. And uh, very much uh, uh, think that it's something that I think the listeners will find helpful. Want to get back to the uh, other question at another time, if that's okay to talk about your work and, uh, Fetal alcohol syndrome. I would love that. Um, That's and, been going on since 1997 that yeah. I've been involved in that work uh, in the Winelands area. Fascinating interview. Um, very much appreciated. Uh, you've been listening to Grand Stories, Profiles in Aging, a podcast discussion with Dr. Kudor Snell. And so I thank you, uh, Provost Snell, uh, for talking to us and for uh, all of your work that you've done and uh, look forward to continued uh, collaboration. Thank you, Dean Cosby. It's a wonderful interview. You asked some very provocative and insightful questions, taking me back to my childhood years in South Africa. And I've been gone for more than 40 years, but it still feels very fresh, the yes. experiences. And thank you for sharing that experience with us on a visit to South Africa. And also, I think I saw things through your eyes as, you know, uh, a person who's from there and perhaps uh, blindsided to certain issues and concerns. So thank you for your refreshing perspective as well. Thank you. 
This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Work's Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HU underscore gerontology, G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y, to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III, Professor of Music at Howard University. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Thank you for listening.